want to make more noises before I start? Or oh. <laughs> yeah, you good now? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. This is how we start every podcast, by the way. I'm not going to edit this part out. I'm just going to include this part. So anyway, <laughs> welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Overlap. Of course, this is Rian being lackadaisical in his uh, approach to uh, recording. But anyway, it's been it's been like a week since we last got on here and talked to you guys about the Premier League. I'm going to be honest. We wanted to do last week's La Liga episode and Rian texted me and he was like, you good to record? And I was like, honestly, between work and the election, I might have to chalk this one. I just didn't have it in me, like mentally, physically to, to get to that point. Between that and having some friends over, it was a long week last week. It was a long ass week, Rian. So anyway, we're back talking the Prem, of course, after last week is now in fully in the past. And we can kind of enjoy some semblance of football again. Rian, I didn't get to see you this weekend, but I know I'll be seeing you this upcoming weekend. How you been? How's your weekend? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. It got, we got some great news on Saturday. Um, but like last week was just, everything felt like such, obviously, such limbo. It was we were like in purgatory for like four days last week. Um so it was like a very weird week to like do work while also just like not knowing uh, when anything was going to happen. So that was definitely like one of the weirder weeks. Uh, I mean, it was pretty fitting for this year in general, but that was definitely one the weirdest work week ever. But outside that, pretty good. We had some great weather here this weekend and it's it still like 70. Like 70. Yeah, yeah. It's ridiculously warm outside. I was, for those of you that know me, you know that I'm very into meteorology and the weather and I've been doing a lot of reading and a lot of research on what the winter is going to look like. It's basically going to be a warm winter. Like there'll be some snow, but it's going to be a very warm winter in the Northeast. So just prepare for that. So we're now shifting the overlap to the overlap X meteorology type podcast where I'll be talking about the weather every week. Just kidding. Definitely not going to do that. I don't have that kind of time, but Rian, one of the biggest games of the season this week, um, I I feel like it was almost overshadowed at least in the U S by what was going on (laughs) politically. Um, cause it should, there should have been much more fanfare around it. Um, you know, just, generally speaking. And I think there was some, but of course I'm talking about city and Liverpool. Now we know that the result was obviously a one, one draw. Rihanna and I both kind of expected goals and expected, I want to say a little bit more energy in this, but I think we'll get to this in a little bit, but you saw throughout the game and especially in the second half, both these teams were gassed. Like they're just exhausted and I almost feel for them in, in a way, like both for fans in the sense that you don't get to see the spectacle that you expected. And for the players who have basically been playing every three to four days for the last several weeks, which is just not a normal schedule. But Rian, thoughts on the two quote unquote top teams in England? Yeah, I, over the weekend, I, I tweeted out about how I think these are still the two best teams, but it's a pretty apparent that they're not quite at that same level as we saw, well, for Liverpool last year, obviously, but even you go back two and three years ago, especially two years ago when they both put up one of the, like two of the best seasons ever for any English Premier League team with 98 and 99 points. But 
they're not quite at that level. And I'm sure that has something to do with the shortest preseason ever and the most condensed season probably any of these play- players have ever played in. And thrown on top of all of that is they're not going to have five subs in the league. And so you saw Trent Alexander-Arnold go down for Liverpool this in the second half and they're already dealing with injuries from Fabinho, um, obviously Van Dyke. And City's still missing Sergio Aguero. And for much of the season, we're missing Laporte. And they haven't cons- had much consistency in the health of their uh, midfield in general. But yeah, it's just two teams that look a bit off the pace. But the first 45 minutes of that game was really, really good. I, th- I thought that was potentially the best for, I guess, half of football we've seen between in any game between the two teams uh, this season so far. It, it was a very, very open half, the, the first half, right? I mean, you saw two penalties called. You saw a lot of shots and, and chances, and, and in a way, a domination of possession for Liverpool, especially in the first quarter of the game, it, it, in a way that clearly just, like I said at the beginning, kind of ran them dry. Like, by the second half, I think everyone was like, oh, my God, I've been running for, like, 60 minutes. And, like, 60 minutes straight. Um, and so the one, I think one of the things that struck me most, at least in the first half specifically, was the success of Liverpool's press. I mean, we've talked about how well Jurgen Klopp is, you know, drills into his team the importance of positional play when it comes to pressing and it all starts with his front three, but to do it against a team like with the caliber or of the caliber of Manchester city means that either city were doing something terribly wrong or Liverpool were doing something really, really right. And in this case, I think it was actually the latter. I, I give more props to Liverpool in this case than I do for Manchester city because this is essentially the same city side that we've seen for the last two years when it comes to general structure. I would say they've obviously replaced the center back, right? That's maybe the biggest change, but you still have your Kyle Walkers of the world and your Zinchenko's of the world on the flank. And I would have expected them to get forward more moving the ball out of the back. But we saw, and I think this is one of the most interesting things that came out of, um, of the first half was Firmino at times was almost used as like a false nine for like the initial pressing phase where Salah and Mane combined to push up almost in the channels, not even on the wings, but in the channels. And then behind those two, almost to create a diamond, well, it went Salah on uh, the right, excuse me, Firmino in the middle, uh, Sané on the left. And in behind both of those wingers, the two midfielders pressed up behind them. And that allowed Firmino to act as a pivot point or, or, or essentially um, a focal point of that press. And so it wasn't no longer, it was no longer the three that were pressing at, at any given time, which is still a good pressing strategy, but it was actually Firmino as a focal point between the midfielders and the attacking line. And I thought that was brilliantly orchestrated because it was essentially forcing city into playing a long ball, which they didn't really do that often, but we're almost forced into at times. Um, so I, I just thought that part of Liverpool's game really gave them the edge in just in terms of what I, what I saw. 
Yeah, you make a good point. The first 15 to 20 minutes, it, it felt like Liverpool was blitzing them in, in some sense. And I think in the past, we've seen when those two teams played, Liverpool start really well against City. And most of the time, they end up scoring like two or three goals in those first 20 minutes and, and have taken the game away from Manchester City in the past. But I, I thought after that first 20 or so minutes, that City kind of weathered the storm enough at least to keep it at one nil and then you saw with the city's goal the one flaw of that formation that they were playing is that or for liverpool defensively was those two center mids uh in wijnaldum and henderson sat very narrow to i would guess to try to keep uh passes from getting into de bruyne make it a little tougher in the middle but what ended up happening is on city's goal the ball gets played out wide to Walker. They break the press and, and you know, I, I think Mane, like you said, he was not quite on the wing. And so it really took city to realize that they just had to play the ball, like over the top of one of these midfielders to Walker who found himself in a lot of space. And then he passes it into De Bruyne who passes it into Jesus who uh, I, are, we, are we saying are we saying that back hill that little flick on purpose or not? I, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I'm, I'm also going to give him the benefit of the doubt <laughs> just because it was pretty. It looks so nice. So, um, but that's what that's where the goal ends up coming from is like the narrowness in midfield from uh, Liverpool. So it was it was a big call to play Jota and uh, Firmino together, and yeah, in the end it it ends up working because they they get a goal out of it and. Granted, the they do end up conceding, but the second half, like you said, it's just both teams were pretty gassed. And I do still think there's a slight concern for, I think, Manchester City for me compared. It's hard to compare the like two seasons ago because they were amazing. They put up 100 points, but like um, it's their they're shots per 90 is compared to even last season, it's a 30% decrease right now. And you compare it to two seasons ago, it's a 32% decrease. And that's just through the first eight games of the season that through the first eight games of the season, there's off a different, they're off a different pace attacking wise. And it's making a, making it tougher for them to dominate games and take real control in games. Um, as we've seen them do in the past and they couldn't quite do it against Liverpool and they don't, they usually can't, it's not easy, but their goal ends up coming from you know, a fatal flaw in Liverpool's formation that City exploits. But outside of that, they created maybe one or two other chances. And, and obviously the, the penalty happens and I'll give us a second before I drop, I get onto just what, what I think we should do with the handball rule slash punishment, I guess now, but and it still feels like City are not creating uh, even with the striker issues of not having Aguero up top, it's other players are not getting, it's not like other players are getting these uh, shots off, right. To, to make up for that difference. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think Sergio Aguero was contributing seven to eight shots a game on his own. So it, it's the shots have to come from other players. I think they're like missing perhaps some sort of like dynamism in, in midfield. I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I, I actually don't think it's in midfield. I, I think it's, I don't want to pinpoint him too much, but I do think it's largely in Gabriel Jesus. 
Um, I think this is much of the criticism that's come of him. It's that he doesn't offer the sort of dynamism that Sergio Aguero essentially does. And I think Gabriel Jesus is an amazing striker um, and certainly a very, very much formidable player for Manchester City. It's just that their profiles are so different that he's just not able to get into the positions that Sergio Aguero is as frequently. I, I think they both do a good job at what they are good at. Sergio Aguero and essentially being a, uh, a striker that offers, uh, I guess, play in the buildup, right? And, and can also finish off a play uh, in, in that poaching sense. Gabriel Jesus is more of a kind of last man standing or around the box. I don't want to call him a cherry picker, but I, I can't think of a better word. That That's how I view them. And so with Sergio Aguero, in that case, you're obviously going to get more chances as he contributes to the buildup play. Um, and also because I think the quality is more, but there is another point too around the substitutions, Rian. I want to talk about this for a second because Pep and Jurgen Klopp both talked about it in their press conferences after the game. And I'm wondering if this problem that you're talking about, right? You mentioned the injuries, you mentioned the goals or the, I guess the shots and the lack of attack from Manchester city. Do you think that adding two substitutions to a game totaling five would benefit these teams? Uh, I don't think that adding to ourselves will suddenly bring cities like shots per game, which is at like just about 15 up to the rate it was in the last couple of years, which was, over 20, 21 plus. I don't think just doing that's going to change it. I I think that's a different issue in the sense of you see Alexander Arnold's injury and you think about the fact that that Liverpool played on Wednesday. Uh, I think Manchester City played on Tuesday and those teams that they played in Europe had five subs had five subs in their own domestic leagues themselves and are able to rotate and, and able to during those games, when they make the subs are able to actually spare some of their players, some fatigue and granted their squads are big enough to be able to make more seamless uh, shifts. And that's what makes a conversation pretty difficult for teams who are not playing in Europe every week, but ultimately it's, just uh it's not protecting the players who have come off of like a three week preseason period and so it's it does feel like the teams who are actually playing three times a week and who are more or less making the Premier League, as my dad said himself when I talked to him about this uh city and Liverpool game yeah he's he's upset because he's like, oh these guys these are the guys who are bringing in the most revenue for for the league itself by, by just the fact of them playing in Europe and stuff like this. And they're not, and the league is not trying to protect, you know, their, these, you know, their players. And, and from a sense, it might seem a little elitist, but what's really the issue is that they're just not protecting the players. Like the, in the end, they're not protecting any of the players and they could easily do it because at the end of the day, every team had a shortened preseason and, are still more or less getting up to speed with this new season and just in time for it to be December. And they're all playing three games a week again, because it's the Premier League's 
congested uh, December period as always. So that, that's that's something that who knows who knows if that would that brings their numbers up. I don't. I'm not sure, but it definitely protects the players, and that's kind of my biggest concern. So I think Rihanna and I share the same sentiment with this. I completely agree in that five substitutions may not entirely help Manchester city in this case. Um, but I do believe that they would ultimately aid player health and longevity. And that I think is probably the most important thing to the season, both for the Premier league and for each club, obviously for the Premier league in that you want your star players to be fit. And that's what you're making your money off of. And for the clubs in that <clears throat> you want the most competitive team to be fielded every week. And right now I don't think that each club's able to do that unless apparently your name is Aston Villa, but that's a whole other discussion. So I, I agree. I, I think that five substitutions is something that every major league in Europe has done. I don't see a reason for it not to be done in the Premier League other than stubborn traditionalists, a traditionalism, I guess. Um that yeah, that's it basically. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, before we move on to Everton United, at least really quick, the handball that happened on uh, during the City Liverpool game, I'll come out and say it. I think it's a foul. I think it should count as a foul as a handball. And uh, there was a similar situation in Leicester and Wolves game. I don't think we're going to touch on very much when we talk about that game. But my issue now, I'm cool. I'm cool. But handball is really hard to call. It's really hard to call. Whatever. I'm cool with those that being called a handball. My supposed, you know, um, amendment that we can make to the punishment and tell me how, if you agree or disagree, if the ball is not going towards the net, if it's a cross, if it's a shot that's obviously going off targeting and granted that can be subjective, whatever, but if the ball is not directly going towards the goal as a shot, then an indirect free kick, indirect free kick in the box. That's, I feel like that's the best of both worlds. I'm fine with those getting called a handball. If we want to call them a handball and take out the subjectivity intent, whatever, there's no perfect way to do a handball to call the handball rule, but the punishment indirect free kick, unless it's a shot on target. See, see, now you have me thinking, because I don't hate that idea, and usually I hate all of your ideas. So now I'm concerned. Um, I can't. Th- Here's the thing: I can't think of a reason to not do that. Uh, yeah, I, I just I, I can't think of a reason not to do that. I, I'm going to leave it at that because I do agree that there is a middle ground that needs to be reached with the handball rule, and I think that if you ask me that. Okay, we could talk about this handball for ages, just like every other one. But I, I agree with you. I think it's on the fence. An indirect indirect free kick is not the worst idea in the world. But if you're going to, I think, if you put this up to a poll of Premier League fans, you're going to get most people saying no. And I think the reason why is because people like decisions to be very binary. Right. It's either yes, it was a handball and it's a penalty or no, it's not a handball and get on with life. And that's kind of what football is. It's, it's decisions of, or it's made of complex decisions that skirt the line and teeter off the fence. I, I, I don't know. That's my personal opinion. I don't hate it. I just don't know if that's realistic. 
Yeah, it's it's the most realistic between that and changing the handball rule itself. And and I just think that as it is right now, something's going to change. And I hope that it's my that it's what I'm what I threw out there, and not something that takes it in the other direction of binary. But should we move on to uh, Everton United? Fair enough. Yes, let's let's talk about two other teams in England that well. Inconsistency is the name of this game, and you could talk about United's consistent inconsistency, as Rian likes to put it, and Everton's just blatant inconsistency ever since they reached the top of the league. Rian, where do you want to start? Um, because obviously United came out on top 3-1, but Everton get, did get out to an initial lead and, quite frankly, blew it. Um, so, thoughts on this game? Yeah, I honestly don't feel like I learned a lot about Manchester United during this game, other than, you know, like, like I said, consistently inconsistent. Uh, we saw how good they were a couple of weeks ago against Leipzig and, and prior to that against PSG. And then they put up that performance against Arsenal. And then midweek, they go and lose to a team of basically uh Premier League past all-stars and that would be really putting it generously because it was Demba Ba, uh, Martin Skirtle, and former Man United uh, youth player himself, um, Raphael, who genuinely forgot about him for the last six years. And then they come back this weekend, and Bruno Fernandes plays very well, and Edison Cavani comes out and scores his first Manchester United goal um, in stoppage time, and they beat an Everton team that is missing Richarlison for the third, for the last of his game uh, suspensions and James Rodriguez didn't look as influential. And I, I think this was honestly a game more about Everton's lack of depth and look at their shots per game with Richarlison. They were putting up almost 13 a game and hitting over two on the, on XG per game without him in the last three games, they're, at around nine and an XG per game of 0.63. So there's obviously no real substitution for him in their team. And even though sometimes they play Awobi on that side, they did not this past weekend. It's not a comfortable position for Alex Awobi either at the, on the left wing. It's just Everton has a lack of depth. And I think we knew that. And they've looked very good when they have their first choice starting 11 in and, and I won't shy away from that uh, sort of generalization of, of how well I think that they play when they actually have their first 11 out there that I think they're, I do think they're one of the probably five to seven best teams in the league, five, maybe five to six best teams in the league when they have their starting 11 in, but um, they don't have the squad most likely to be able to withstand injuries, which are, pretty normal for James Rodriguez, unfortunately. And you know, stints like this where Richarlison is out suspended. Yeah, that, I think this is a common theme that's been discussed about Everton, right? It's just, it's this idea that they are on paper and even on the field when they field their field on the field, when their starting 11 is as strong as it can be, they are genuinely a top five side. The only problem with that is that that happens so infrequently, at least from what we've seen. And 
given the schedule, given the injury history of their players, both new and old, that's going to make for a very, very confusing and quite frankly, improbable end to their, you know, top four wishes, basically. It's interesting to me. You're, the reason why I was laughing so hard, you, you could, no one could hear me, but I was laughing so hard when Rion first came out and basically said, I learned nothing about Manchester United is because that's probably the meanest thing you could say about a team. That's not terrible. Like just, you learn nothing about them when they played like that. Just imagine someone has a 30 minute meeting with you about a topic at work. And by the end of that meeting, they just go, yeah, I learned nothing from you today. That's the equivalent of what Rion did to Manchester United. <laughs> Let me point out though. I don't disagree with what he's saying. I just think the way he said it was hysterical, but I digress. I do agree ultimately that Everton's lack of fluidity is because of their depth, TLDR. Yeah, and you know, with United it's just we never know what's coming. That's like that's just what it is. We just never know what's coming and can I ask one question though? Yeah. Do you think cuz cuz Jamie Carragher said something, I think it was either today or yesterday. Um he he basically said Paul Pogba is not a good player. Like, what do you think is the problem with Manchester United? Cause I, I think that take is extremely hot, like a hundred degrees in New York summer hot. But I, I honestly, I don't know if I have an answer. I, I think the obvious one you would say is Ole, but without spending too much time on it, I, do you, do you think there is There's a, a no, 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 answer no, for, no, for Pogba? Like we talked about it last, I think last week, right? It's just, I, I think it's just possible he's not as influential of a player as we thought. And I don't think that's unfair to say he's going to turn 27 or or 28 this season. So he's going to turn 28 this season. It's, it's fair to throw the the criticism on him. Now we can't say that, Oh, just let him develop. It's it's we're past that. So I think he's just possibly not as influential as we think and is not in a good situation. And United is a really really bad situation as a club above the manager. Like we, we know that too. So United are, are pretty, are pretty poor for, at the foundation of their club. So it's hard to blame any of these players, but if we're just talking about the squad, it's, it's not a great fit. There's, there's not a great fit for, for him or, and for their best players to all be on the field together. Yeah, no, completely fair. The one thing I would love to see coming out of United is an Amazon All or Nothing original series uh, featuring Ed Woodward for 70% of that documentary. That would be... ah, <laughs> They would never, they would never no, let not. cameras into that place. Not a chance, <laughs> not a chance. Well, it depends. it depends on how much money Amazon would offer them. I think that is key. If they could get out of some of their debt with that without having to repay Goldman Sachs, maybe that's a different story. <laughs> but, <laughs> that is true, that is true. Yeah, I, again, I digress. But, Rian, why don't we move on to a game that, honestly, I don't know if any of us can say we're, we were surprised by the result. Maybe maybe the, I guess, the, the difference in the number of goals, but I I wasn't entirely surprised by this. Like, Aubameyang, oh, I'm talking about Arsenal and Liverpool. Uh, oh, my God. Arsenal Aston Villa. I ruined the preview in that, but... My point that I was trying to get across is that Aubameyang has not been in top form the last two weeks. Um, I don't know if their midfield 
problems have been solved entirely. I think Partey is still fitting in very well, but I, I still think they have a couple of other issues. And their defensive line is still booty. So that recipe isn't really a winning one against a side that is very much in form. Jack Grealish, who is playing like prime Mesut Ozil. Um, wh- what? Uh, what? You, I don't know where to even start with this. Like this, this game for me also screamed Mesut Ozil on the Arsenal side uh, as if, you know, he was in the squad for the season. He would have made a big difference, but I, where do you even start with this? Start with perhaps, as I said, to, <laughs> as I texted at least over the weekend, perhaps Arsenal should not have let their most creative player <laughs> sit at home drafting tweets for the entire season. <laughs> but I, I really think this is, I think this is a bit more of Aston Villa played really, really well. And, and take nothing away from them. Like Ross Barkley, Nigeria's son, once again, balled the fuck out. <laughs> dude. He was great. Um, he, Grealish, and McGinn all played with a creative freedom and fluidity that is non-existent in Arsenal right now. And, you know, I went and I looked at, like, the heat maps of this game comparing Arsenal's midfield and attacking players to Aston Villa's. And what we saw, what I saw in Arsenal is a lot of verticality, right? And I was nothing wrong with that necessarily, right? Passing vertically, but a lot of verticality and not a lot of heat around the D of the, of the penalty box where but Aston Villa, you look at it, Barkley and Jack Grealish given so much freedom to move around. John McGinn seemingly playing the number eight and, and honestly a little poor man's Frank Lampard, honestly with his late runs into the box, everything about Aston Villa during in that game was just eight out of 10, nine out of 10, 10 out of 10 from their, their midfield and attack. I mean, you just look at the Ollie, the second Ollie Watkins goal where Barkley plays it. I'm sorry. No, the first one, it's gotta be the first one, the first one where Douglas Louise plays this unbelievable crossfield ball to Ross Barkley into the box. And he hits across first time on the volley with his left foot into Ollie Watkins. That's just pure class. Like that is what you would expect an Arsenal goal to look like. But all of that was happening for Aston Villa. I, I, my favorite goal, I think was the third goal, the second Ollie Watkins goal where it's a counterattack and Jack Grealish carries the ball for like 40 to 40 to 60 yards at least. And he's carrying it mostly alone. And Hector Bellerin runs up beside him and they're running with each other for maybe like 10 to 20 yards. And at some point, like a basketball player, like, like James Harden, basically Jack Grealish goes to draw the contact with Hector Bellerin and shoulders him out of the way creates space for himself to slip in a pass down. I think the left channel for Ollie Watkins, who ends up 
to score uh, his second goal of the game. And think about Ollie Watkins. He's got a hat trick against Liverpool and a brace against Arsenal. And he came from the championship. Series. So it, it's there, there are some good players in the championship. But it, not harping, harping back to uh, a certain red team in Manchester that chose wow. the wrong one. But wow. there's some you good players in the championship. To... There's some good okay. players in the championship. It's crazy what happens when you just scout well. Um, but, <laughs> but, no, I mean, Barkley was amazing, really. I think that was the biggest takeaway. Like, he had the most touches for Aston Villa, where, like, you compare that to Arsenal. Kieran Tierney had the most touches on the team for Arsenal. That's not what you expect from a team, from a team that you would think would be expansive, attacking, or an Arsenal, just an Arsenal team playing Aston Villa in any sense. Right. I mean, we have to give a lot of credit to Ross Barkley. Six key passes during the game as well. So it's his influence was was I maybe surprising slightly. Uh, but you you almost said impressive. Almost. Maybe maybe slightly surprising, but no, extremely impressive. Six key passes. Like no one else no yeah. one else would reach that level. So so what I'm going to do after I edit the pod, I'm going to take this clip and I'm going to take it out of context and just post it somewhere online for all of Chelsea Twitter to go off about to, to just, you'll have to deal with that. Of course, it'll Chelsea be Twitter's loves it. dude. Chelsea Twitter's <laughs> loving Ross Barkley falling out. Dude. Everyone loves it. That's money in the <laughs> bank at, at worst. <laughs> I can't wait till the prodigal Nigerian son comes home against Chelsea to score a brace and have eight key passes along with three assists. That that oh, no, be no, no. England they don't they don't in England your your loanees don't play against you. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's a Spain thing. Oh my god! I think it might be so just right. an England thing that they don't let it happen. You're probably right because they do a lot of things weirdly in the Premier League. I'm not used to in in La Liga. That's totally fine. But anyway, very good points about Aston Villa, about Jack Grealish, who really is just a quality player, like to the point where I could seriously see him moving away from Aston Villa like next summer, just depending on the financial situation, of multiple clubs, obviously. But he has so much talent and he is so exciting to watch. And you, you talked about his creativity and the the freedom that he was afforded. That's clearly where he thrives, right? You have to let him roam around essentially the, I would call it anywhere in the 10 area to basically the channels on either side in the final third, just absolutely inc- truly incredible. Like it was really, really fun to watch him play. Um, but yeah, the other statistic that I will give you from the Arsenal side is that Aubameyang registered zero shots. So again, just goes to show that <laughs> I honestly I want to I want to say it's Arsenal's problem, but I, I do have to give a little bit more credit to Aston Villa. I just do. No, yeah, give the credit. The overall performance, you have to give the credit to Aston Villa. Um, the I I want to I. I'm still trying to steer away from too much criticism on, on Mikel Arteta, but I think this was his worst game as an Arsenal coach so far. Oh, for sure. From, for sure. From what, he, from what the manager could control, from what he could control, I think this was the worst. And I don't think it's even close. And there's some real conversations that need to be had about the positioning of 
the midf- the attacking players and who is playing and who's not playing. I think Arsenal fans are seeing why many Chelsea fans were really okay with William leaving. Again, another pod or another point in the pod that had nothing to do with X Chelsea players that you're just whatever. Well, it yeah. plays for Arsenal. It plays for one of the teams we're talking about right now. And, ah, and it's playing, that's so fair. And it's that's playing so over over a certain <laughs> seventy-two million pound player. So it's all right. It's all a right. weird I'll, one. I'll shut up. It's a no, weird that's one. fine. I'll, I'll it's shut a up. Weird one. But uh, you're right. Yeah, I mean, nothing. I think nothing typified this the difference in like that creative freedom that we're talking about than the first goal for Villa where basically Barkley and Grealish are like it, the, the play just comes to an absolute standstill. And if you look at this first goal again, there's a good three to four seconds where no one is moving neither for acid Villa or Arsenal and everyone is just standing. And I think Grealish is on the ball and then he and Barkley just kind of play around with the ball a bit on the wing there. And then finally, uh, Barkley plays this wonderful reverse pass, I think, into like, Matt Target. And it ends up in a cross and, and uh, the soccer own goal comes from that. But I'll leave it with one last note. Like, Ars- Villa had four players who completed at least two dribbles. And Arsenal only had one. And that one player was Thomas Partey. Not any of the other attacking midfielders or the golden boot leader from last season. So all very valid points, but as we continue to crap all over Arsenal, I do think it's time that we take a break. Of course, we will be back with a little bit of a discussion around Chelsea, Leicester and the rest of the teams in the Premier League from the weekend. Right, ladies and gentlemen, like I said at the break, we are back talking a little bit more about Rion's beloved Chelsea and honestly, a lesser side that still has room to grow. So, Rion, let's start with Chelsea. I I think I told you, I want to say last January, this past January, when Ziyech was signed, I believe, I told you that this player... Hakeem Ziyech is going to be the best player in the Premier League next season. Right now, I think he's living up to that. I think he's getting pretty damn close in terms of consistency and the performances he's put up. Just taking the goals and the assists out of it for a second. Thoughts on Chelsea so far? Thoughts on Hakeem Ziyech? And where are Chelsea headed? I'm trying to keep my, my expectations very tempered this season, but... I'll give it to you, Elias. You were completely right. I mean, Chelsea played Sheffield United this past weekend. They beat them 4-1. But honestly, that doesn't even tell the story enough how good Hakim Ziyech was this past weekend. It it could have been more, but not because, oh, the team played beautifully and all that stuff. No, it could have been more because Ziyech was just creating that many chances like himself almost. So, um, no, the, Chelsea played without Havers and without Pulisic, who I think is now has to fight for his place again because Tammy Abraham has played so well that it gives uh, Timo Werner a chance to play on the wing and play a bit in a system a bit similar to what he played in. 
um, for RB Leipzig, if you imagine Tim Abraham as um, Yusuf Polson at play the same somewhat role, same similar role at uh, Leipzig. But during this game, Hakim Ziyech recorded the highest single game expected assists total of the season. 1.79 just from expected assists. And that would be really nice if your team itself got 1.79 as a whole, but he was just that good. It's uh, same as Ross Barkley, six key passes this weekend. And just in general is the angles of crosses that are coming from the right side of Chelsea. When you throw in Reese James, who's a right footed um, right back and Hakim Ziyech, who's a left footed right winger, you're getting both in swinging and out swinging crosses from the same areas. And I think that makes it really difficult for defenders as we saw on um, Ben Chilwell's goal, where it's just this wild uh, in swinging or sorry, left footed cross from the right wing. And it creates such a problem for defenders, the Sheffield defenders this time and the goalie himself, Ramsdale, who didn't really know whether to come or stay. And in the end was kind of caught in no man's land so it's it's unreal. It's a similar situation for uh, Ziyech's second assist to uh, Thiago Silva, who scored his first goal for Chelsea this past weekend. It, it's clicking well. The 4-3-3 is the way for Chelsea. And, and from what we saw this past weekend, Kovacic played kind of a similar role as as uh, Havish, just in the sense of he made the runs forward into the box too. And that's what led to the first goal. And that's ultimately what has been working for Chelsea and all good stuff. It's, it's all good stuff for, for Chelsea right now, but I have to remember they have the last two games they played against Sheffield and Burnley who are both in the relegation zone. So December will be the real test. Yeah, that's I, you hit on the caveat that I was going to point out, but Yes, that that's the the only thing that I throw in because other than that, I thought Chelsea have been absolutely fantastic to watch. And I, and I said this to Rian two weeks ago off the pod. I, I genuinely think that Chelsea are the only team outside of Liverpool right now that could genuinely challenge for the title. And it doesn't have to do with standing in the table. It has to do more with their consistency and the squad depth that they have. This is a team that could fully start Timo Werner, Hakeem Ziyech, Christian Pulisic just as a front three, right? And you still have Kai Havertz on the bench to come on, right? You you still have players to fill those gaps. I don't even want to call them gaps to fill those positions and rotate, right? That's especially given that there are only still three substitutions in the Premier League right now. That's, that's a pretty good recipe for, for continuing success right now. And the way that Chelsea have been playing in the 4-3-3, you made an interesting point. I'm not entirely convinced by necessarily the 4-3-3, so much as I'm convinced as the positional play of Timo Werner and Hakeem Ziyech. Maybe maybe it's It's a a balance and it's kind of a mix of both, but I do think that the 4-2-3-1 that Chelsea played allowed Timo Werner kind of a little bit more freedom up, up top, but with that freedom came a lack of chance creation that came towards him. Now with Hakeem Ziyech playing basically the, the role of a creator, right. And, and closer to Timo Werner. Uh, I think that solved that problem. 
So maybe I contradicted myself entirely, by the way, but it, it it's, you know, that that's, those, those are my thoughts. I genuinely think that we have yet to see if the four, three, three is the way so much as Hakeem Ziyech really kind of coming into his form. Yeah. The, the, the four, three, three that Chelsea plays is I think very fluid in a sense of, yeah, Werner's on the left, at least when he plays on the left, he starts on the left, but he's kind of in the channel, pretty much in the channels for the most part. And searching around for any loose balls or whatnot, but the real width on the left side is provided by Chilwell. And that's, that's been the biggest difference I think for Chelsea from the left back position is getting real width from both of their fullbacks really. And, and that helps Werner especially because then he doesn't have to stay fully on the wing because he's, he's not really a winger. So from a team that has seemingly figured out their formation to Leicester who are sitting top of the Premier League right now and have shown a lot of tactical flexibility, Elias. It's really, really nice to see a redemption arc uh, for for Brendan Rodgers, especially. I know we're only eight games into the season, but Leicester played extremely well last season. And I think he's just showing he's showing that he's obviously more to him than maybe than we thought. Right. I think that the Leicester story from five years ago to now is one of the best sports stories of all time. I'm, I mean that so genuinely because it takes one thing to pull off a miracle. A miracle alone is, like I said, a miracle. But to consistently stay in the picture of a top six team, I mean, that is seriously impressive. And that's also off the back of losing key players to other clubs. And for Brendan Rodgers to come in and I, I think do two things really, really well. Give his youth chances consistently over the, the past, I would say, six months or so. Right. So that's number one. Number two. I think that he set up this team very, very well from both a defensive like point of view and from an attacking point of view. The midfield, I think, is is fine and admirable, but I think your Vardys and your Telemans of the world were absolutely thriving from this kind of direct, almost, I don't want to call it counterattacking exclusively, but this direct style of play that Brendan Rodgers has, uh, has kind of been accustomed to with Leicester. And... That combined with the youth that he's playing off the bench is just genuinely impressive. So I I have to give it to him in, in sense. Yeah, I mean, you think about the tactical flexibility that they've shown along with the wonderful recruitment. And shout out to whoever scouted Wesley Fofana, uh, um, the 19-year-old center back that you got from Saint-Étienne from, from Ligue 1. That's looking like a great signing. He's played really well against Wolves, but the tactical flexibility from Leicester, they've played three different formations, at least a hundred minutes and then a fourth formation, 94 minutes. And they've played all different types of styles. They played a four, five, one, a three, four, three, a four, five, one, and a three, four, two, one. Like there's a four, 
you know, some two of them are very similar, four five one and the five four one, and then same with the three four three and and uh three four two one, but they have shown that they can play in all these different ways and be effective. And in three out of those four formations, they have positive expected goal difference. They are legit top four contenders. And they're doing this all without Wilfred Ndidi, who I believe Ellie's and I both put in our team of the season for the Premier League during one of our, um, our coat, our, uh, COVID slash season suspended episodes <laughs> in the spring. Um, we that both we had Ndidi in our, in our uh, team of the year. So they're missing him and they're missing uh, Ricardo Pereira, who plays right back, who, who was one of, uh, I think my top three to five in honorable mentions to get into that team of the year. So they're doing this without their, without their best midfielder, at least their best holding midfielder and their best, uh, fullback. So really hats off to Brendan Rogers and, and this team in general. And I think they're just going to get better as the season goes on and really testament to them. And this is not, I don't think this is like a flash in the pan. At least we're seeing that last season wasn't a flash in the pan. Yeah, no, that's, that's the thing, right? It's, I, I've said constantly on the pod the one most important aspect of any player's game or any team's game is consistency. It's the hardest thing to achieve in football. Not everyone that, I mean, that's part of why Messi, Ronaldo, et cetera, have been the, the best players of all time is because they've been consistent for literally 12, 15 years. And I, I, I see those elements of consistency in this Leicester team. I just do like, it's, it's something that they have become accustomed to. And I think one of the most, I think the way to quantify it would be by highlighting the fact that Jamie Vardy has reached a hundred Premier League goals in five seasons faster than most top strikers that have played in the Premier League. That happened this past weekend. That alone should tell you how consistent this Leicester side is. I think that that's the best way of quantifying it. Honestly, I don't think there's much more that needs to be said. And so from one impressive side to another, shall we get into the rest of the results from around the Premier League? Yes. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Southampton for a second. Ah, Rian, do you have a man crush on Southampton's manager? Do you? Because ever since you've like started talking him up since he got thrashed last season by Lester, it, it seems as though he, he heard, I guess the praise and um, he seems to be turning things around. So do you have his number or am I missing something? <laughs> oh no, I, I, I wish, I wish I did. Now Ra- Ralph Hasanoldo, I, I said so much about him, but Southampton just keep continuing to, to impress you know, they, this past weekend. They beat Newcastle on Friday two nil. And that puts them at six straight games unbeaten since, that uh, five-two loss to Tottenham, I think the second the second week of the season. Uh, they've been putting together really good results, and I I don't know what this means. I, I don't. We can't get too carried away because they also just lost Danny Ings for the next four to six weeks with a knee injury, so that, that's really tough for them. And granted, they played this past weekend without him, and 
and they held up well. We'll see how they fare for especially the December, the December period, which will be really tough to play. Uh, I think half of that without Danny Ings, but like all praise to, to Ralph house and I'll keep saying it. He deserves a top six job. He deserves it. He deserves a job at a champions league level team. And, uh, I don't think Manchester United are smart enough to actually make that hiring, but that's the type of job that is a job that he should be on a short list for. Well, don't forget that Pochettino is still free. I'll just, I'll just point that out. True. You know. True. As the short list, the short list, he should get, he should get it. Sh- he should be. Yes. Yes. Fair enough. <laughs> I don't know what that interview would do, but yeah, fair enough. It, that would mean Manchester city or, or excuse me, Manchester United are thinking smartly, but that's not happening. So you can write that off, but yes, Southampton's run of form has been nothing short of impressive. And given that they're unbeaten the last six games, I mean, where do you expect them to go between now and I guess, let's say the end of the year when Danny Ings comes back. I, they're sitting in fourth right now. I'm going to expect that there's so many good teams in the top half. I, I think it's just going to be difficult for them to stay in the top six or seven by time he returns. But, um, you know, I didn't think they'd be in fourth right now. So they still have to play wolves and Manchester United in the first two games back. And in December, they have to play Arsenal and Man City. And, you know, they, they still have some tough pictures coming up. But yeah, this is, they're overperforming right now, their expectations, but not overperforming, I think, their actual performances. And that's probably the best thing that you could say about them. Fair enough. I think that's a, that's a completely fair assessment. And I'm probably, again, Shockingly on the same page as you again. And I don't, I don't like how often I'm doing that this episode, but anyway, we'll move on. One of the other teams that we have to talk about as always is Leeds. They're kind of on a teetering point. I, I don't know if you get that sense too, but they're kind of in between putting up amazing results combined with amazing football and poor results combined with very average football. So I, I don't know if this is a Bielsa thing or it's a just, a nature of the competition changing from the championship to the Premier League. What, what do you make of Leeds right now? Because I'm I'm very on the fence about them. I think uh, I think on the fence is maybe just about right in terms of results. I mean, they play. I don't think we're on the fence about how much we like how they play and and how well they play overall. But you know, they, they're feast or famine. Really, they, in games that they've lost. They've been truly outplayed and it looks bad when they lose, but when they win, they look great. And I mean, sometimes the opposition also looks great, but when they win, they look great. When they lose, they, they have a propensity to lose pretty poorly. You know, the, the last two games, they've shipped eight goals in the last two games. And you wouldn't say that any of it was quite undeserved when you look at the, the uh, XG stats from those games and, it is. It is what it is. I think they're uh, they're no in no danger of being relegated, but they're going to be extremely entertaining. And the flip side that comes with that, as a team that is coming up from the championship, their quality at the back isn't the best. So you know, it's playing that open. It, you're going to leave yourself really, really exposed to teams that are just at a higher quality level in the final third than you saw in the championship. 
Yeah, I think consistently Lee's back line has been I think the I think the clinical term is sus, by the way. I think that's what you're looking for. Um but yes, I, I agree. I think that's been kind of the the focal point of many of their mishaps, but it, let's not point out that leads are still a very good side. Like I think they are still a, a above the mid table range type of side and they truly, you know, gave Manchester city a run for it. So let's not, let's not forget, you know, the peak of this side. But like I said, a couple minutes ago, consistency is what matters most. So Let's see what where leads are by Christmas. I think that'll tell us a little bit more about their level of consistency and being able to continue with the string of maybe positive results. As their schedule doesn't look terrible, um, but again, that's the issue with leads. So, lastly, we're Rian, still we're still Bielsa Bros. We are, yeah, yeah. Let's not let's not <laughs> let's not forget. Let's not that. get it twisted. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're not gonna we're not ever gonna get off that train, but. Rian, there's one last thing before we wrap up that I want to touch on. Let's talk about Fulham because we also hate ourselves. Um, but now let's let's talk about Fulham for a second. Let's say you're in a situation where you have the opportunity to to win a game, right? And and you are the penalty taker. Um, what kind of penalty are you are you going to decide to try and take? Is it going to be a you know purely precision? You want to shoot from the cor- for the corner? either you know upper or lower you want to purely go for power because you know that goalkeeper maybe isn't as strong with his hands or has been having a shaky game or do you want to and this is you know where I'm going with it Panenka and Panenka is always a very formidable way of going about a penalty um but would you rather Panenka into the center of the goal after the goalkeeper chooses a direction or would you rather Panenka straight to a goalkeeper that is slightly to that goalkeeper's right and about within three centimeters of movement required to save that ball going at no more than my mother's Chevette in the 1980s? Um, I, I don't, I, I don't, I can't, I give up. Rian, what, just to explain what happened. I give up. I mean, well, personally, I, I, I would have gone with a Rabona, but Adamala Lukman is, is a bit more humble than I am. But it, it was really bad. It was so over the weekend, Fulham holding West Ham nil nil for the entirety of the game for the first 90 minutes. West Ham ends up scoring in, I believe it was 92nd minute right, at a time. Fulham are given a lifeline at the very end in the 98th minute. And Ademar Lookman steps up and tries a chip and it goes slightly wrong. <laughs> and by slightly, I mean, he completely mishits it and it would have worked if he actually had gotten it down the middle. Unfortunately, he moved it slightly to the, to his left Fabianski had actually gone down to his right. It would have worked, but the execution left a bit to to be desired. And Fulham sit at in 17th. Every point is precious. And I hope really hope that by the end of the season, we don't have to look back on that penalty miss and attribute that to the reason that Fulham potentially goes down. But they are sitting in 17th, one point off of 
the drop zone. And it, it's, I, I feel bad for Lookman. It, it's just the execution was poor. The execution was just really poor. It, it would have worked. I, I stress that it would have worked, but it's when it doesn't work, it looks horrible. I mean, that's, that's why we're talking about it because it didn't work. So yeah, it was terrible, <laughs> but yes, no, I'm, I'm just being an ass, but yeah, I, I almost do feel for him because I, I think the, the attempt was actually genuine. I just don't know why he chose that opportunity to Panenka because it just wasn't the right, just slot it home. Just don't, you're not, you know, Lionel Messi, like let, let's just be honest for a second. Okay. Just slot it home like every other penalty taker. But hey, sometimes you get a head rush. I I can't say that I have gotten that type of head rush, but I mean, I guess it happens. <laughs> yeah, I don't think either of us have the confidence to attempt that. <laughs> I don't know if I want it either. That's just another level that I don't think if you it goes well, you can ever come back from just yeah. for, from our point of view. But I, I wish the best to Adamola Lookman because... Tough man, that's tough, especially for Fulham, because that can actually be, that can actually make a significant yeah, difference. Crossing in there. our fingers that it really doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, fingers. that could that could make a significant difference in their relegation run. But anyway, Rian, I think that wraps up everything from us on our end. Of course, we will come up come out with a La Liga episode this week <laughs> compared to last week where we did not. Uh, given the tumultuous nature of our pending uh, democracy. But yes, with that, thank you guys as always for listening and we'll be back soon. Thanks guys. Thanks.